Saturday, on Saturday evenings, there's a show on television with a very interesting concept. I'm sure some of you have seen it. The announcer for the program, Early Edition, introduces the show each week with the following penetrating question. He says, what if you knew without a doubt what was going to happen tomorrow? The concept is fascinating because it goes on to imply that if you knew without a doubt what was going to happen tomorrow, how would it impact your actions today? And for those of you who are not familiar with the, the, the series, basically what happens is this gentleman wakes up each day and there's a newspaper at his doorstep, but the newspaper headlines are for the next day. So he gets the newspaper headlines for the following day, and now he has to deal with what can he do to make an impact today on the future. And it's a fascinating thought, and it's one that I want to share with you because, you know, I want to ask you the same question. What if you knew without a doubt what was going to happen tomorrow? How would it change your actions today? Now, I know it's a dangerous thing asking a group such as this a question to think about, but perhaps you've heard the story that reminds you of the story of the, uh, the lion who wanted to go about the forest to make sure that in the jungle that everyone knew that he was the king of the forest, the greatest beast in all the jungle. So the lion got up one day and he went to the gorilla and said, Mr. Gorilla, who is the greatest beast in the jungle? And the gorilla thought for a second and said, oh, you are Mr. Lion. And the lion roars with approval and he goes away and he comes across a rhinoceros. He said, Mr. Rhino, who is the greatest beast in all the jungle? Rhinoceros thinks for a second and says, oh, you are Mr. Lion. And he roars his approval and he walks away and he goes across the bull elephant. And he looks up at this elephant and says, Mr. Elephant, who is the greatest beast in all the jungle, the most powerful creature on the face of the earth? The elephant thought for a second, reaches down with his trunk and grabs this lion, and he proceeds to pound this lion into the ground. He beats him into the ground, he throws him against a tree, he picks up this crumpled lion and he tosses him out into a lake, where the lion, battered and bruised, comes crawling out of the water. He goes up to the elephant and he says, listen you, just because you don't know the answer, that's no reason to get so upset. <laughs> so keep that in mind as I ask questions here today, but what, if you did know what was going to happen tomorrow, without a doubt, how would it change your actions today? That question will be the foundation for our new series because that's the question that was foremost in the thoughts of a group of people who lived in a city that was 100 miles to the west of Philippi and 50 miles north of Athens in the heart of Macedonia. The city was first named Therma uh, because of the hot springs that were located in the area, but in 316 B.C., Cassander, who was one of four generals who divided up the empire of Alexander the Great, took this particular area, this Macedonian area, and he made Thessalonica his home base. And he renamed the city in memory of his late wife, who was a half-sister of Alexander. And so the church in Thessalonica was established on Paul's second missionary journey. And, he had and they'd had several questions that they wanted Paul to address, and they sent Silas and Timothy, who had been left behind by Paul in the city of Berea as he went to Philippi. They sent Paul and Silas with a list of questions that were troubling them as to some of the things that were to take place in the future. So it's interesting, although the Thessalonians were a very young church, that Paul, as we will see in this particular letter, and not only did he not think their questions were foolish, but he didn't think the subsequent answers that he would give them would be beyond their comprehension. And in fact, it was the question, their question concerning the return of Jesus Christ that would be at the heart of, their, of his response back to him. And so as we think about this question of, what if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt what was going to happen tomorrow? How would it affect your actions today? That was the question that they struggled with as they were addressing the issue that they had been taught that Jesus Christ would one day again come to this earth. 
And so they struggled with the timing of it. They struggled with the purpose of it. They struggled when it was going to happen and how would that impact their life today. And they weren't really sure what they were supposed to be doing in the meantime. And one of the things that Paul would go on to tell them, he, he echoed basically what Jesus said on many occasions. And that was, you know what, in light of this truth, we're supposed to be ready. We're supposed to be ready for his coming. But like many of us, the Thessalonians weren't quite sure what that command entailed. What does it mean to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ? And the letter had a threefold purpose, basically. Number one, the letter was to confirm young believers in the basic truth of the gospel, to root them and ground them in what they really believed as new believers, as Christians in the Christian faith. What is it that we really believe? And many of us aren't really sure sometimes. What do I really believe? This was to ground them in the basic truths of this doctrine. The second thing was to condition them to live their lives in a way that would be pleasing to God. That somehow or another their lives here on earth as they awaited this great day would be pleasing to God in everything that they did. And the last thing was to comfort them concerning the return of Jesus Christ. Because they lived in a world not uncommon to our world in that there was a number of philosophies out there regarding death. Regarding death and also regarding the future coming of Jesus Christ. And it was to comfort them in the truth of the word of God that yes indeed Jesus did say he'd return and he will return. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with that or have never heard that before, it's interesting. I saw a bumper sticker the other day. It said, uh, Jesus is coming back, and boy, is he ticked off this time. <laughs> you know, and I thought that was kind of fascinating because even as, as strange as that sounds, there, there, is a, there is some deep theological truth to that, and that is this. God promised in the fullness of time that had sent forth his son born of a woman, and at the right time and in the right place, God in his plan before the foundation of the world, because of his love for humanity, sent Jesus Christ here on this earth to suffer and die for our sins. That's what the Bible teaches, that it was in the fullness of time, according to the preordained plan of God, that Jesus would come onto the surface of this earth and take on the form of humanity and live a perfect life and then die for our sins so, so that that sacrifice would be pleasing to God once and for all. The Bible says that he then died and he rose again from the dead. And there were over 500 witnesses to this truth. And all of, all of time is based on this reality of before Jesus Christ coming to this earth and after his presence here. That he rose from the dead and there were witnesses who saw it. And the world has never been the same since then. And the people who saw it were never the same afterwards. But the Bible says he ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And one day he will return to judge the living and the dead. The Bible teaches that Jesus himself will come back again. Now, for those of you who think that, or it sounds like that's a bizarre thing, let me ask you this question. Is the return of Jesus Christ to this earth any more bizarre than his first coming to this earth? And as a result, we can look at the evidence that God has given us, and if he was here the first time and did what he said he did, and the evidence is overwhelming that he did, then why would it be strange to us that he would return again and do what he promises to do? So the Bible teaches that Jesus one day will come back. But these believers in Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonica were as confused sometimes as we are as to what this really means. When is he coming back? And, and is he coming back? And, and, and what are some of the questions and the answers that they needed? We'll go through that as we go through this. Paul's letter offers a marked contrast to the pagan culture that was present in Thessalonica because an ancient inscription in Thessalonica read this way. After death, there is no reviving. After the grave, there is no meeting again. Isn't that sad? After death, no reviving. After the grave, no meeting again. Those were the philosophies that were being taught and told to people of that day. And Paul writes... 
that this is not true. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. It's in the New Testament. It's one of the first letters, if not the first letter, that the Apostle Paul ever wrote to encourage a group of people that were located in a central location, in this particular case in Macedonia, at a place called Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we see the introduction because basically what's going on as we look at this, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it's addressing the question of what is the church or what is this group of people supposed to be doing while they wait for the return of Jesus Christ. Now obviously some churches are more on track than others. In fact, the church at Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonica was in the ideal category. And in fact, if we want to look at it, you know, and you want to have a role model or a model example of what it means to be involved in a church that's got it together, this church had it together. And there was no fewer than three times that Paul gave thanks to this church and to their ministry and the way, he, the way they received him and also what he had to say. They were, for all intents and purposes, the ideal church, a great pattern to look at as to what a church is supposed to be all about. And so as we look at this, we can learn some things and see some characteristics about this church that made it ideal and a joy to the Apostle Paul. And in 1 Thessalonians, we read this in verse 1. It says, Paul and, and uh, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God our Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul identifies four characteristics of an ideal church as we go through this passage. The first is found in verses 1 through 4 and he says the ideal church is comprised of an elect people, a people that are chosen by God. In verses 5 through 7, he, he, he tells us they are an exemplary people. There's something about their lifestyle that is a great example to people around them. In verse 8, they were an enthusiastic people. And in verse 9 through 10, they were an expectant people waiting for Jesus to come back. And so as we look at all this, we see these four characteristics of a church. And what I want to do is just kind of take them one at a time and go through it and explain it so that it makes a little bit more sense. But in the first four verses, we read that they are an elect people. They're an elect people. He says in verse 1 that they were the, to the church, to the church of the Thessalonians. Remember, one of the purposes of Paul's writings is to confirm in the hearts and the minds of new believers what it means to understand the truth of their new faith. And he immediately gets into some of the deep doctrinal issues that we have to deal with as far as our faith is concerned. But it's amazing to me that here were a group of people that were probably three to four months, they'd only been believers maybe, maybe three, I'm sorry, three to four weeks at the most. They were four weeks old in their faith, so to speak, and the Apostle Paul did not hesitate for a moment to teach them the greater truths of God. They were an elect people. The Bible says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. The word church means a called out people. Whenever you see the word or read about a call in the Bible, it uh, indicates a divine election. 
This is of God's choosing. Paul wanted the Thessalonians and also us to understand that it was God who chose them out of the world. Acts chapter 15, we see some insight in that. Also, Jesus said this seven times. He said this in John chapter 17 when he referred to believers. He said that we are those whom the Father gave to him out of this world. That God had called us or he has chosen us or he has elected us out of the world of humanity. He had called them and chose them, elected them. And they, they had been chosen by God. The doctrine of election, I know, confuses some. And, and, uh, and on the other hand, uh, you know, to others, it frightens us and we want to run away what, from it. And uh, as you look at this, you're going to see that this church is ideal because they're the true church. These were people that weren't counterfeit. These aren't people that decided, oh, I think we'll try this church today. Or I think we'll join this denomination. Or we'll go over here and check this out. These weren't people who were choosing what church they went to. These were people who were chosen by God to belong to his church. And there's a huge difference between the two. We live in a world today where people choose what church they go to. But they can choose the church they go to, but it doesn't mean they're chosen by God to belong to God's church. And it's an interesting concept. And so as we look at this, I want to share with you five facts concerning this whole idea of divine election. That is God choosing us out of the world. Five facts that I think that once we understand this, it's going to change your life in many ways. And as, uh, as Mary said, the arrows of conviction will be slung forth, not because it's me, but because it's the truth of what God has to say. And it'll change our lives. The first thing is this. Five facts concerning divine election, and that's this. Salvation begins with God. Salvation begins with God. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we read, God hath chosen from the beginning. He has chosen you to salvation. John 15, 16, Jesus said this, hey, get something straight. This is the New Living Version. I like to kind of throw it out this way. But it's kind of like, hey, get something straight, just in case you're confused about this whole area of, uh, of election. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Don't ever forget that truth. You didn't choose me. I chose you. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, back a couple of books. But listen to the words that are written here concerning this whole idea of election or being chosen by God. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, we read these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as, listen, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. You see what he says? He said he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Isn't that interesting? The Bible says that God has chosen us. In verse 4, back in 1 Thessalonians, it says the same thing. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his election or his choice of you. Dr. Albert Heim of the University of Michigan says this. For the past 50 years, America has been under the control of men who do not know the origin and beginning of our nation. They do not realize that the Puritans had a tremendous impact upon this nation. One of the great truths that the Puritans stood for and which was basic to their entire lifestyle was that of the sovereignty of God. Behind election and all of life is the sovereignty of God. The Creator has His sovereign rights. 
Let me just explain this in simple terms. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't get hung up so much on how he did it or why he did it. What I'm more concerned about in our culture today is that we understand that he did it. We get all hung up on, well, how, how did he do it? And was it six days or seven literal days? Or was how many hours were in a day? Or how many millions of years were in a day? And, you know, and we get off on all these tangents. But the thing that we lose in light of the truth of what God is trying to say is this. So that every person can grasp this and understand it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That doesn't get much simpler than that. And it doesn't get any easier to understand than that. In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And apart from Him, all things that came into being, nothing came into being apart from Him. And then it goes on to say, And in Him was the life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and talked about Jesus Christ and how He became man, and He was manifest before us. And the point and the reality is this. The Bible teaches that God created the heavens and the earth. Now, for some of us, we get really hung up on this thing about, well, why does God do what he does, and how does he do what he does, and why don't he explain it to me a little better so that I can comprehend this? And this whole doctrine of being chosen by God, I say, fits into that category where we all stand there and go, but wait a minute, what does it mean that God chose me before the foundation of the world, and what does that mean as far as my freedom to choose whether or not I will receive what God wants to give me even though he has chosen me? Oh, I got a headache. You know, somehow we go, man, you know what, I can't comprehend this stuff. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be just flat out up front with you. There's a whole bunch of stuff in life I can't comprehend. You know what I'm saying? Some of you can comprehend things I can't comprehend, and some things you, I can comprehend you can't comprehend. Now, let's just put this into a category that we can all understand. Is it not humanly possible that there are some things that God does that none of us will ever comprehend? Oh, let us hope so. You know what I'm saying? I don't know about you, but looking around at the rest of us thinking that we can all comprehend what God can comprehend is a scary thought. If that's the kind of God we're dealing with here, I don't know, let me off right now before this thing just crashes and burns. And, and if you don't think that there's a question to that, turn with me for a moment to the book of Job. You know, Job had some questions that he wanted to ask God at one point in his life. He wanted to know how God did what he did. He wanted to know why God did things the way that he did. He didn't really understand all that, and so he thought he'd go ahead and question God. And in Job chapter 38, God then decides, you know what? Ah, I just got to make a point. Job, you want to question why I do the things that I do? Some of us here today want to question God, why he does what he does and how he does what he does. And if I can't understand what God does, then therefore I'm not sure whether I'm going to believe that God did it or not. It's like, what? I mean, stop and think about how silly that is. I hear people all the time say, well, I can't understand how God did what he did. Therefore, I'm not going to believe God. Duh. You believe a whole bunch of other people, you don't understand what they did, you believe them. I don't understand how you did that, but gee, you know, I see it's done. I believe you, but I won't believe God. And so Job had some questions, and this is what God's response to him was. In Job chapter 38, it says, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Oh, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now you gird up your loins like a man. I'll ask you, and now you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? To me, tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or, where, or, its, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of, joy, or, or sons of God shouted for joy? 
Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it came forth from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and fixed darkness its swaddling. He goes on. Hey, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? He goes on to ask questions. Have you ever entered the springs of the deep? Have you ever walked in the recesses of the deep? Tell me if you understand all of these things. He says, where is the way to the dwelling light and darkness where it's placed, that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the path to its home? You know for where you were born then and the number of your days is great. And he goes on and he asks him about 40 questions, or actually I counted 47 questions. And he goes all the way through chapter 40. And then finally Job answers God and says this. You know, I'm feeling a little bit insignificant at this point. Behold, I am insignificant, and what can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, I will not answer even twice, and I'll add no more. See what he's saying? He's saying, you know what? Sometimes the best thing that we can do is not ask God how or why, but put our hands over our mouth to shut up for a while and to listen to what God has to say. Just shut up and listen. That's what he was telling Job. He's saying, if you think you know so much, then you explain to me all these things. And Job, at this point, is saying, oh, I don't think I know that much. But then God, wanting to make sure Job doesn't miss the point, continues to ask him some more questions. Then the Lord answered and said, Now gird up your loins like a man, and I'll ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God, and, and, and uh, can you thunder with a voice like his? And he keeps going on and he asks him a whole bunch more questions. And he makes his point to Lord. Finally, in chapter 42, if you look at that, here's what Job has to say. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours will be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. And I will ask of you, God, and you will instruct me. I have heard you by the hearing of my ears, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I retract, I repent in dust and in ashes. Okay, got the point. Now, why do I bring up this passage in light of what we're talking about concerning election or being elected or chosen by God? Because I will guarantee you that there will be those who listen to this who get a headache over trying to understand it. How can God choose me, yet I am responsible to receive his choosing, even though he chose me before the foundations of the world? Isn't that an interesting thought? You know, what's fascinating to me is this. There are people who say, okay, God chose, God created the universe, but then they'll deny his ability to be able to direct it any way he wishes. They deny his ability to have created it for whatever his purposes are. And for those of you who are not really sure why you're here or what the purpose of all God's creation is, it's this. The Bible says that we are to let our lights shine before men in such a way that we will bring glory to God who is in heaven. Let me just make this as simple as possible. God created everything that we see and all the things that we can't even see or comprehend. He created it all for one purpose, to bring glory and honor to himself. That's it. God created you and I to bring glory and honor to God as our creator. You know, we look at these things and sometimes it's amazing. I think another point that needs to be brought up right at this moment is this. You know what? God is not a tyrant. 
God is not unrighteous. God is not like man in that he has sin in him or in some way could lie or snake his way into doing things that sometimes we think. God is not unrighteous. There is no unrighteousness in God. First John says there's no darkness in God. So when we ask the question about, hey, well, how can God have chosen some of us and not chosen others? We think and imply in a way that somehow God's just not fair. That God chose me, but he didn't choose you, but I'm not sure if he chose you or not because I don't know whether he did or not because he gives you the freedom to receive his choosing of you even though before you were even born or or around, he had already chose you before the foundation of the world in Jesus Christ and I get a headache and I start to think to myself, you know what, I don't really understand all this, but I can't understand this. That is what the Bible teaches. And then I think, but you know what, that shouldn't bother me that much because there's a whole bunch of things in life I don't understand. And so why would it bother me that God teaches us something that's truth that is beyond our comprehension? It doesn't bother me. All I do is I read and go, well, that's pretty clear. Now let me ask you another question. Does anybody remember God coming to him and saying, hey, you know, I'm thinking about creating you. Where would you like to be born? Anybody remember? Did God ever come to any one of us and say, you know, Chuck, when would you like to be born? Who would you like your parents to be? When would you like to live? And how long would you like to live? Would you like to be born to a wealthy family? Or would you like to be born to one on the other side of the tracks? Would you like to be born in the 20th century or the 14th century? I don't know, just tell me because I'm really confused and I need to know when you want to be created. Now, I'm being facetious because I want you to understand something. Who are we to even begin to question God when he created us and he is our creator and we are the creation. Do you see how, how arrogant we are in our culture today that we would even begin to question God as to whether or not God has the right to do what he wants to do? He's a creator. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think we just should fall on our knees and say, God, thanks for making me. I'm just glad to be here. Wherever it is I am. I'm just glad to be here, just glad to be part of the program, just glad to be born and, 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 and given life, and I thank you, I woke up this morning and I have life, and I just pray that some of the people that are here that are close to not having life, that you would give them life, because it seems pretty lifeless right now in this particular group. So, anyway, so you see, the, the thing is, you know, God is no tyrant. He says in verse 4, in, back to 1 Thessalonians, he says, you know what, God has chosen you. That is a deep theological truth that a new believer can grasp. God chose you. Now, here's the way this basically works. Jesus said this, If any man is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. If you're thirsty and you need to be forgiven and you need to have a relationship with God, then the Bible says, let him receive Jesus Christ. If you're thirsty, drink. If you're not thirsty, don't. It doesn't matter one way or the other because God is in control of all things. So as we look at this, it gives us a headache, but it shouldn't give us a headache as we go down through this because, hey, you know what? God has chosen us. The second thing is this. Salvation involves God's love. God was motivated by love. God demonstrates his love to us, and yet while we were still sinners, messed up in rebellion against God, the Bible says that he sent Christ to die for us personalize that. While you are in rebellion against God, God loved you so much, he still sent Jesus Christ onto this earth to suffer and die for your sin. He was motivated by love. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God is motivated by love. But understand this. Love made Calvary possible, but love will never save any person from their sins. It's God's grace that saves us through from our sins because God's grace gives us that which we do not deserve. Do you understand that we do not get what we deserve because of God's grace? And that's a fascinating thought as you consider all these things. God in his grace gives us what we don't deserve, and God in his mercy does not give us what we do deserve. And as we look at this, that's why I look at 1 Thessalonians, the first verse. He says, Paul and Silas and Timothy, the church in Thessalonians, uh, in, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, grace to you, listen to me, every time you'll see this introduction throughout the Bible, it's always this way, grace to you and then peace with God. God's grace comes first. When we receive his grace, we then are given his peace. We now have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace always comes first, and it always precedes peace. Salvation involves God's love, but salvation also involves faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this, For it's by grace you've been saved, through what? Through faith. And not of yourselves. It's a gift from God, so that none of us could ever boast. This whole doctrine of divine election involves faith. Faith. Faith is this. Believe in what God has to say. Believe in what God has to say. And this is the work that is pleasing to God, that you believe on Him, Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. You cannot work your way into God's favor. The only work, so to speak, that God accepts is the work of faith which believes what God says about Jesus Christ. And that's simply this. You and I will never get to see God, we'll never get to heaven, unless we believe what God says about Jesus Christ, that He is the only way to the Father. He is the only way to forgiveness. There is no other name under heaven by which men will be saved than that of Jesus Christ. The work of faith is this. I don't understand this. I don't understand how Jesus died for my sins is going to be the gateway to me getting to heaven. But, but I know this. By faith, I believe God. If that's what He says, I must do in order to get into the kingdom of God. Do you understand that and follow that? Don't, don't miss that. The work of faith is simple. I'll give you a great illustration of it. We just did the book of 1 Peter, so Peter's fresh on our mind as we we're thinking about his relationship with Christ. But, but understand what he had to say. Jesus said this to Peter one day. He said, hey, Peter, go ahead back out and throw your nets over the side of the boat. And Peter said, you know what, Lord? We've been fishing all night. We didn't catch a thing. And uh, I, you know, I don't understand what you're saying to do here because we've been fishing all night and we're fishermen and we know the fishing industry and there ain't no fish out there. So Jesus says, well, you know what? I'm telling you, go back out and just throw your nets overboard. And this is what Peter's response was. Nevertheless, meaning, nevertheless, we were out all night, we fished all night, we caught nothing. Nevertheless, if you tell me to go back out there and throw my net over, I'll do it. That's the work of faith. Nevertheless, I think I understand all these things, but God, if you say something that's different than what I think I understand or believe, then nevertheless, I'm going to change my thoughts, I'm going to change what I believe, and I'm going to trust what you believe. Hebrews chapter 11. That's what faith is all about. Believe in the Word of God. Salvation also involves the Trinity, which is interesting if you think about the concept of the Trinity, because the Bible clearly teaches, here's another thing to give yourself a headache. You in the mood for a headache today? Here's a good one. Okay, the Bible teaches there's only one God. But the Bible also teaches that, there, that one God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Try to understand that. It cracks me up how many times we try to explain to people, well, this isn't a hard concept to grasp. What? 
You can't explain this. I hear some of the lamest things. Well, it's kind of like the sun. You know, the sun has light, and the sun has warmth, and the sun has mass, and that's kind of like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oh, give me a break. It isn't even close. You can't explain this, but it's clearly taught. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe, and the Bible says that God the Father created the universe. Well, how does that happen? Because Jesus said, if you've seen the Father, you've seen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father am one. So the Bible teaches there's only one God, but the Bible also teaches that, he, that God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now you sit and you say to yourself, well, wait a minute, how is the Trinity or this, 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 this three persons in one, how is that involved in our salvation before God? Well, here's the way it works. Before the foundation of the world, God chose me before the foundation of the world. Before I even lived one day, God chose me in Christ. God the Father chose me. Jesus Christ on the cross died for my sins. Now, let me ask you this question, too. Here's one, just a little side thought. That's why I stepped over here. How many of my sins and your sins were in the future when Jesus died on the cross? All of them. We weren't around. So here's what cracks me up today. If Jesus died once for all time for sins for all of humanity, he died on the cross that day, 1900 and some years ago. All of my sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven the day that Jesus died on the cross. Is that an incredible thought? Well, no more incredible than the fact that I didn't even exist anyway and I wasn't even a thought in anybody's mind at that point other than God who chose me before the foundation of the world to even give me life, yet alone to give me eternal life. So God chose me. Jesus Christ died for me. And here's how it all came to fruition. On February 16th, 1978, I heard somebody share the gospel, which was, you know what? You need to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ if you ever want to be forgiven of your sins and you ever want to step in the presence of God. On that night, February 16th, 1978, all of God's plan came into fruition. God had chosen me before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And on that particular night, the Holy Spirit of God convicted in my heart that I had a need for Jesus Christ and I received him as my Lord and Savior. That's how it all fell into place. But you know what? Was God shocked by that? No. Did I think I chose to receive Jesus Christ at that point? Yes. Does it make sense? No. Is it truth? Yes. So that's where it all comes about. I mean, that's it. And here's the other thing. Salvation changes the life of the person who is given life by God the Creator. Salvation changes the life. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. I will tell you and testify before you that my life has never been the same since February 16, 1978. Whom God has chosen, God changes. And if you doubt that for a moment, we need to get back into the Word of God and see what He has to say about these people because their lives were never the same after they invited Jesus Christ into their lives. They were an elect people. They were an exemplary people. Look what it says. Because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. 
This wasn't some traveling sideshow where these people came and they began to preach their philosophies. No, this is the living, active, breathing Word of God that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And when we stick to the text and we teach people the truth of the Word of God, the Word of God in the power of God goes out and penetrates people's lives and their hearts to where they have no choice but to respond to the call of God. When you are chosen by God and God calls you, you have no choice but to respond to His grace and mercy. When, when, when God called Peter and said, leave your nets and follow me, he didn't have a choice and he didn't hesitate because God had chosen him and called him and he left it and he followed him. You see, they became an exemplary people. It says, you know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us. What's the ideal church? The ideal church is comprised of people who are chosen by God, not people that have chosen to come, but who are chosen by God to be there. They were also an exemplary people in that they followed or imitated the life of the Apostle Paul and those who were godly men around them. Because what a new Christian has to say is this, I don't know anything. I want to look up to someone who will mentor me, who will teach me how to live as a Christian. I will follow their example. And unfortunately today, we don't have a lot of role models out there. Listen to me, the Apostle Paul didn't hesitate and he says, be imitators of me. Why? Because I'm an imitator of Christ. I follow in his footsteps. And unfortunately, many of us get disillusioned by following godly people because godly people have a tendency to fail. And so we don't follow them anymore. And we don't want to as leaders or people that are in a position of leadership. We don't want to tell people to follow me because we don't want to fall and fail and have them hold us to a higher standard. So we lower the bar for everybody. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing as a parent to be able to tell your children, Hey, you do as I do. So many of us grew up with, don't do as I do, you just do as I say. And you're sitting there going, hey, you end up doing what they did because that's what you saw role modeled before you. Let me just make this challenge to you. The reason these people were exemplary is because they weren't afraid to tell those around them, hey, you know what? Just do as I do. Do as I do. Walk in my footsteps. Be imitators means to follow in the footsteps of the person in front of you. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? If you are hesitant to tell people around you to do as you do, then you need to stop doing what you're doing and start doing what's right before God. If you're hesitant to tell your children, do as I do, then you better take a good hard look at what you're doing and stop doing it so that they can do what you do and follow you. And I'll tell you what, when you sit down with them and you try to give them guidance and direction, the easiest thing to do is to say, hey, look, we don't talk like that. We don't do those things. The reason we don't do those things, they're not pleasing to God. And we want to be imitators of God and walk in a way that's pleasing to God. That's why we don't do that. So it's not a matter of, oh, we know what, we do this, but we're older than you, we're smarter than you, we're more educated than you, and you can't do that because, oh, it's illegal. Duh! What is wrong with us? They were exemplary. Why? Because they said, just, hey, they followed Paul. Paul followed Jesus. Every new believer followed in the footsteps of the people that were before him. Isn't that a wonderful truth? We need more godly examples and role models, folks. And if you're thinking like I'm thinking, then let me just challenge you, be one of them. Just be one of them. It's not that hard. It may mean you just have to do the things that are right before God. But that's all right, too, because God honors that. And don't forget that our lives are supposed to bring Him glory anyway. That's the only reason He gave us life. Bring Him glory and praise. They were an exemplary people. Here's what I also like is this. They were enthusiastic people. They were enthusiastic. Look what it says. And the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. They were enthusiastic. You know what the word rang out 
the definition of it, the word rang out, sounded forth, and sound as a trumpet to ring out, to reverberate. Here's the way it works. You and I hear the truth about God, His love for us, and Jesus Christ's death for us and His resurrection from the dead. We respond in faith and believe that. God changes our hearts. He gives us life. He changes our attitudes. He changes our minds. He changes the way we think about things. And you know what happens? Hey, our lives aren't the same as they used to be. You know the most natural thing to do at that point? Is to shout it out! Their lives shouted it out. It reverberated. All over the place. Walk into work tomorrow. Go out on the athletic field. In the classroom. Everybody join in. What, what, what's the point here? How can we have received the greatest message that man can ever hear that God did it all in His love and sent Jesus to die for us? All we have to do in faith is believe that and we are given eternal life and a place in heaven for all of eternity when we got a world out there that's working their brains off trying to figure out who God is, yet alone how to please Him. The greatest thing that anybody can ever hear is you can't do anything. You're hopelessly lost before God. But don't worry about it because God loves you so much He sent Christ to die for you. If you just believe that, He says you become a child of God to those who believe in His name. And if you, and if you believe that, then guess what? You're given eternal life with God for all of eternity. Now, does it get any better than that? then why isn't it being reverberated by the chosen people of God who are called out of the world so that we can tell other people about this truth? When was the last time you told someone that truth? When was the last time you lived your life in such a way that they said there's something different about you and you've got a piece about your life? And why is that? So that you could say, hey, you know what? It's not because of me, it's because of God and what He did for me in Jesus Christ. Can I ask you a question that's personal, penetrating, and a slinging arrow of conviction? When was the last time you shared that with somebody that you care about? If you knew tomorrow with a certainty what was going to happen to that person, and the Bible says that God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn it, because the world is already condemned. If you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that tomorrow, if that person died, they would be separated from God forever in a place called Hades or the Lake of Fire. If you knew that, would you not have such a great sense of urgency today to share with them what they need to hear, that God loved them and He sent Jesus Christ to die for them? You see, folks, the ideal church reverberates that message throughout the world. The ideal church is us as human beings, as people who have been changed by the mercy and the love of God, who leave here today and, and, and we share with as many people as will listen to us the truth of God's love found in Jesus Christ. That's the ideal church. It's not the church that has the biggest building program or the church that has the, the, the coolest you know, laser shows and stuff like that. No, the ideal church in God's mind is the church that goes out and simply shares the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ with people that need to hear it. They were enthusiastic about it. Why? Because they weren't ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the, the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed to share that with anybody. Why? Because it's the only thing that's going to save them from their sins. 
We need to recognize and understand it. And the last thing is this. They were an expectant people. For they themselves report what kind of reception that you gave us. They tell you how to, that, that they tell you they tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he had raised from the dead. And that is Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. In closing, let me just make this point. So he says, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. You know what's interesting to me? We get kind of messed up sometimes on what we share with other people. Paul didn't come into town and say, okay, I'm going to give a seminar on 10 reasons that serving idols are displeasing to God. 15 reasons why having sex outside of marriage is displeasing to God. Whatever form you want to throw it under. 10 reasons why getting drunk on Friday nights isn't a good thing to do. He never came into town with all those seminars. You know what he came in town to tell people about? Jesus. Why? Because here's the way it works. You've got a whole bunch of people in the world that are walking this way. Okay? Walking this way. Doing their own thing. We all like sheep have gone astray. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so just kind of throw yourself in that category because the way I read it is this. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. No, there are none righteous, no, not one. You feel left out? Okay, good. Because you're not supposed to. Uh, so you're in that category. So we're all walking this way. And you know what? We're all serving ourselves. And I don't care how we do it, whether it's sex, whether it's drugs, whether it's you know, material things, whatever it is, but we're all walking this way to please ourselves. And then one day God comes onto the scene and we hear about God's love and that we need to turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and that we have life eternal with God. Now here's the way this works. When I turn to God, all of that stuff's behind me now. You follow me? And now I go this way. Because when I turn to God, I turn from whatever it was that I was doing before. That's just natural. If you want to remember it, just remember it that way. Was he walking this way? God called me. He chose me. I responded to his call. I heard his voice. Chuck, receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Yes, Lord, I will. And now I'm walking this way. And I've been walking this way since February of 1978. And you know what's amazing about it? No one had to tell me to stop doing any of those other things. Why? Because when I'm walking towards God, I'm walking toward righteousness. I'm walking toward holiness. I'm walking towards perfection. I'm walking in a way that's pleasing to God. Why? Because I'm imitating the people who have turned and followed him and walked that way too. And the word of God says, if you love me, Chuck, you'll obey my commandments. And it doesn't get any simpler than this, folks. And, and you know what's amazing? As I wait for the day that Jesus comes back, I continue to walk this direction. That's what I'm supposed to be doing while I wait for Jesus to come back. That's what you're supposed to be doing as you wait for Jesus to come back. The ideal church is an elect and chosen group of people chosen by God. They are an example to people around them, exemplary in how they live their lives. And as you look at this thing and we go through it, you know, it's amazing to me that we don't understand or see these things. We need to recognize that they were enthusiastic as they walked toward God, everybody that came in contact with them along the way, because they were going this way. It's like at the end of a football game or baseball game, you see guys coming by and they give each other a high five. Here's the way I look at it. Every person that's walking this path that's still walking in a direction away from God, it's my responsibility, according to God, to share with them as they walk by and as I give them a high five. Hey, listen, by the way, you're going the wrong direction and you need to turn and walk this way. 
So just kind of grab every hand walking by you because as they get past you, they're going in the wrong direction. They're enthusiastic because they knew the direction they were going. And the last thing is that we just saw was they were expected. It changed their life. Knowing that Jesus is coming back tomorrow with a certainty, it should change the way we live today. I don't know what you want to grab from all of this stuff because there was a lot, and that's what happens when I have a week off. Um, <laughs> but, but you know what? It's all going to be like that, so let's just see what God has to say about what to be doing as we wait for Christ to come back. They turn from idols to serve a living God. Won't you serve a living God starting today? Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. And I just pray for those who are walking in a direction that's going in the opposite way. As you called them and chose them before the foundation of the world, and as they hear your voice, that they would respond and thank you for your grace and your mercy. That they would respond by believing in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And as we've trusted in him, and he changes our lives, whom God chooses, he changes. May we become enthusiastic about the simplicity of this message to the point where we're examples to people around us. And God, as we expectantly wait for the day that Jesus comes back, may we be found ready as we serve a living God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.